Happy New Year. Welcome to Equal Footing. I'm Dove Tuzman. We're going to do a best of 2022 in the rear view. I wanted to do this last year for 2021, but we didn't get our act together. It's actually the first in a two-part series. We're going to do January through June of 2022 in this show, and then July to December next week. Going to try, apropos to our format, to be open and vulnerable. This was a tough exercise. We went through, you know, we never miss a week. You know, knock wood. That'll stay that way. So we had 52 weeks of content. That's 52 hours of content. It took us a lot to narrow that down to some, not necessarily the best of clips, but some clips that kind of give an insight into the content arc and the guest selection, what inspires us for topics. And hopefully we picked some of the raw, rawer, rawest, what's the word? Moment, moments on air for this year. Let's get into it. So beginning of 2022, our first show was about feeling the personal experience of God. The question on the table to our wonderful guests that week of Rabbi Yaakov Bankhalter and Buddhist monk Doam Sunim was, does it matter to your faith or what's the impact on your faith from having a personal experience? Do you need to actually, whatever, however you define that, personally experience a miracle or God at work in your life to believe or is that not a requisite for faith? And it was interesting because both Rabbi Bankhalter and Master Doam Sunim were converts in a way to a religious life. In Judaism, we call that a balshuva. Someone who's kind of gone on to a religious path later in life. And, and so, and they both did so, I would argue, at least I argued on the show as a result of their own personal kind of miracle experiences in their own lives. Let's listen to a little bit of the audio. Experienced spiritual practice both in East and West. And here's my theory to both of you. In the East, spiritual practice, whether it is meditation or uh, prayer in the form of chanting uh, or yoga uh, or even the, the, the ritualistic prayer, the mala beads where you're doing a mantra uh, over and over, to me, is less about veneration or worship and more about experience. Like through the breath, I think in Hinduism, pranayama, like the, the breath work, um, through the meditation, you're actually trying to have a, an experience of, 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 of the divine. And my experience, my, my perspective, Rabbi Yaakov, is that it seems to be that in my Jewish life, worship, uh, davening, prayer, is, is a little bit more intellectual. It's more about like 
um, believing and reading and cognitively processing as opposed to experiencing. Well, that was my commentary. Let's hear a little bit about how Rabbi Yaakov Bankhalter positioned his relationship or his experience as it relates to his faith. Modern existed today. I'll ask you both. Let's start with you, Rabbi Yaakov. If, if, if the Sanhedrin were reconstituted and existed today, kind of like a great court, what would be the question, a couple of questions or cases you think would be put to it? So uh, I would do one that actually, though it's a matter of detail, uh, is a is a is a matter that can affect life and death, and that is the precise definition of death via the the ability to harvest organs for organ transplant. That's probably the most serious undecided question that remains in this. Sorry, that's the wrong audio. That's a little bit later. In our, uh, in our series here, you can see we're, we're getting the kinks out and, uh, hopefully we'll, we'll get this done a little bit better for next week. Let me just look into this. You know, we talked about this, the show being how the sausages get made. And so you're actually seeing it. Here we are. I was going to talk about some of our production challenges this past year and we're having one right now. I'm going to just actually look in the studio, our wonderful, uh, producer, Leah and our studio engineer, Dimitri. Do we have the Rabbi Bankhalter audio where he's talking about Sandy Koufax. Can we cue that up? For those of you who are listening, I think this is an absurd topic and too esoteric. It's, it, it, it came, the genesis of tonight is that I, I was an atheist at one point in my life and I believe in God, not because I decided to, uh, or at least not rationally decided to, but because I feel like I've had experiences of the divine in my life. And the direct question, clear question with a clear answer, oh, okay? I'm scared. Go ahead. Okay. Do you believe in God? Yes. Do you believe in God who created everything? I don't know. That's the problem. If you truly believe God who created everything, what's the problem? All things happen right now. What's the problem? Everything is God created. We talking, moving, all nature, people, everything God created. Well, that wasn't the audio I was looking for, but that was great. That was a dialogue with the Buddhist monk, Doam Sunim. We, we talked very openly on that show about our struggle with atheism. We got back to a couple times later in the year. Uh, we're not going to play this audio right now, but at the end of that show, uh, we talked about what it is to be a bad Jew or a bad Buddhist, as it, as it were. Um, a struggle that we again visited later in the year on our shows on, on guilt and the particularly and I guess prominent place that as people of the Jewish faith we, we hold as it relates to guilt. There was a great study that we looked at later in the year about how, um, there are various sociological studies showing that that um, that other faiths perceive um, the Jewish faith as being the most adept at processing and dealing with guilt. We totally switched gears a little bit later in the month, and we brought on Dr. Stephen Snyder and a therapist named Rachel Klachewski, who's been a guest several times on the show to talk about the religious and evolutionary importance of the female orgasm. 
It's a fascinating show. Dr. Snyder is a professor of psychiatry who practices, whose practice is almost entirely devoted to sex and relationship issues, and particularly the study of the female orgasm. And, and uh, Rachel Klachevsky also has a deep um, experience in this area, working with particularly female clients. And one, a couple of points that were interesting that came up in that show that were um, really uh, unknown to me prior was, one, the kind of um, biological or evolutionary connection between the genitals of men and women and how um, the orgasms actually work. I encourage you to look on our SoundCloud or any of the podcast platforms to look for that show. We called it The Big O. And, um, and interestingly, I give a, a couple of, at least one stat that came out of the show that 80% of women, um, in same sex relationships, uh, reach orgasm, um, at some point in, in the relationship and only 60% of women in heterosexual relationships reach orgasm. We also talked about kind of some of the, some of the halacha around the, the topic. Um, let's see if we have a clip. I think it's um, audio 3B. I'm trying to help the folks in the studio where uh, we have Dr. Snyder uh, talking about this topic. Talk about all that. Yeah, so, so we talk about where, what's, what, what fits with what. Um, so the penis is the uh, uh, corresponding organ is the clitoris. The vagina and the vagina area and the lips and so forth, the corresponding organ is the scrotum. So, I see. Uh, for a woman to have a, try and have an orgasm with her vagina is like a man trying to have an orgasm with his scrotum. It's going to be very ambitious. Um, so the- uh, that's just a, a teaser, as it were. You got to check out that show. All right, we went into February and we got the there was war uh, on the horizon. By the beginning of February, it was there was a lot of talk about the potential incursion of the Ukrainian border by the uh, Russian army. And finally, war was officially declared, I guess, in the Orwellian speak of Putin. A special military operation was declared on February 20th. Uh, but there was significant political and civil unrest before. We decided to lean in, do a deep dive on that issue. On the first topic, which is well, what kind of war was in the air, but not formally declared, we thought about the the time when Judaism was more united, you know, when when the Sanhedrin existed, this uh, body, a kind of political body representing Jews that have been that's been uh, disbanded for millennia. There's been some talk about reconstituting it in the last several hundred years, uh, but how war was declared and how legislation um, was brought into place, and one of the kind of proto democracies. In, in our history, the role of the Sanhedrin show in February was with Rabbi Shlomo Yaffe and Rabbi Shmuel Green, both great scholars. And uh, let's play, I think, audio two uh, from the Judaism United role of the Sanhedrin show. Sanhedrin existed today. I'll ask you both. Let's start with you, Rabbi Yaffe. If, 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 if the Sanhedrin were reconstituted and existed today, it's kind of like a great court. What would be the question? A couple of questions or cases you think would be put to it? So, uh, so I would do one that actually, though it's a matter of detail, uh, is a is a is a matter that can affect life and death, and that is the precise definition of death 
via the, the ability to harvest organs for organ transplant. That's probably the most serious undecided question that remains in dispute uh, at the present moment. Pardon my ignorance. Is that about whether you can be an organ donor as a Jew or no. receive the, the, no, no, the organ? No, that, that, that how do we define death and particularly what are the parameters for brain death? Uh, and this is a, a matter of huge debate uh, within the within the within the rabbinic community. And there are, and if you the simple way of doing this, you know, go you know, if you Google brain death, uh, you'll just, uh, brain death in Jewish law, you'll see that there's a lot of discussion about this. So that would be that would probably be useful. Fascinating stuff, and and insp- inspiration for a show later in the year, actually. So let's see. <laughs> I'm nervous to pull up this audio because my note, my, my show notes say, says Dove makes a bold statement pro Sanhedrin. So let's, let's see what I had to say. It's audio four on the Judaism United show. The idea of an aborted project uh, preventing you from continuing to endeavor to, to, to birth the project. It, it has never resonated with me. I mean, we, we wouldn't have all of the scientific discoveries and many, and in fact, we wouldn't arguably have survived as a Jewish people had we taken that approach. So yes, there are, there are dangers in, in, in recreating the Sanhedrin. And my understanding, I may be wrong, is that the Lubavitcher Rebbe also later in life, uh, you know, softened on that point of view. But the Napoleonic example, we won't go into detail here, you, you, you address was, was an, an, an important, um, Example of how it could be abused, but you know, Rabbi Steinsel said a quote uh, here. Um, he said, "In order to move forward and no longer be defined as an aborted fetus, to become serious, so we can say a child was born to us, we need a lot of time. The mere mention of the name Sanhedrin is not a given. It is no longer a matter of a religious council. It's something that has historical meaning, a basic change, not of one small system, but a fundamental system." I'm glad that I wasn't really making the bold statement. I was there quoting Rabbi Steinsel's fascinating stuff. Check out the Judaism United uh, show on the Sanhedrin as one of several historical deep dives that we did on the show this past year. That led us right into the thick of it post the declaration of war or the practical reality of war in Ukraine. We went into a show called the Halacha of War. So through Professor Rob Eisen and Professor Reuven Kimmelman, let's get right into it. Audio 5 on the Halacha of War. The wisdom of the Tzalmacha tradition can be applied to ethical issues throughout the world. For example, a, a case of war. Normally, war is discussed in terms of just war and unjust war. In the uh, classical tradition and the Christian tradition. In Judaism... The two categories they use are mandatory war, mechemet mitzvah or chovah, and mechemet reshut, which is a discretionary war. By discretionary war, they mean reshut beit din, the discretion of the Sanhedrin, which represents the people. So the two major issues involved in the Jewish war, that is the executive and the political body that represents the people. And Robert Eisen, Professor Eisen, then went through, through the lens of a Jewish prism, how do we view the war in Ukraine? When we look at something like what's going on in Eastern Europe right now, and we'll, you know, there, there are these biblical 
prescriptions or restrictions around, around around war. It all seems quite abstract to me. How, how do we apply those rules right now if we're looking at the news this morning as an observant Jew and we're wondering beyond my belief of of whether Ukraine should be able to defend its uh, it, it should be able to preserve its own sovereignty and maybe I'm sympathetic whatever the Russian arguments whatever it may be is there a Jewish prism through which to read this morning's news well I, I think absolutely um, first of all uh, you know let me just try to undergird this discussion by saying that there's very little material on war in general in halacha because it evolved when Jews had no state and no army, right? It evolved in the medieval period, and all of that changed in 1948 when Jews had a state and an army. You know, rabbis then had to develop laws of war, and they did. Uh, but they tended to develop laws of war dealing with the Jewish state. So most of what what we call the halacha of war is concerned with, with Israel. But there, there are some halachic authorities that deal with non-Jewish wars. And here there's a division of, of opinion. Some authorities believe that non-Jewish nations can wage wars that are either defensive or offensive. They can wage defensive and discretionary wars. Uh, because that's the way the world is always functioning. It's almost like a grudging acceptance to the violence of humanity. You see this position represented by the Nitziv, a great 19th century halachic authority, who simply said, this is how the world is, and there's not much we can do about it. But I would venture to guess that most halachic authorities um, say uh, differently. Uh, most halachic authorities will tell you that really only defensive wars are okay, especially uh, more recent halachic authorities. Uh, authorities. That was, I thought that was fascinating. Professor Eisen talked about only defensive wars being arguably halachically defensible or uh, by Jewish law kind of endorsed, as it were. We're not going to go into the audio, but Professor Kimmelman went on to talk about the fact that it's arguable, strongly uh, arguable that Jews have a moral obligation to fight for the underdog in any war, whether Jews are involved or not, um, where the underdog is is being um, is on the on the right side, as it would you know being subject to bullying. There's an interesting discussion there. Check out on your podcast platforms or at our SoundCloud link the halacha of war. We're going to get into where that brought us into March 2022 after the break, and we'll get into a little bit of what was going on in the background. The beginning of the year, unlike on this show tonight, uh, was pretty smooth in terms of our programming, and meaning when I say smooth, it doesn't mean we did a good job on each show, but that we were able to kind of be in studio most of the time uh, in our main studio here in, in Brooklyn and Cheapshead Bay, and we uh, the, the guests we had lined up kind of matched where we wanted to go. Got a little rocky in March. We'll be right back. I've been staring at a road. Equal footing, as always, even on the best of show here, is brought to you by DocuVax in part. DocuVax is a very easy-to-use digital locker for your medical records. You can get it on the App Store on your Android or iPhone. Just go to DocuVax, that's D-O-C-U-V-A-X, 
And you can also go to DocuVax.com. But it's not just for vaccines. It actually covers over 60 different important elements of your medical profile. Yes, flu and tetanus and COVID vaccines, etc., but also preventative screenings like colorectal and breast cancer exams. Also blood types, allergies, MRI results, etc. You've got to have all your medical records in one easy-to-sort, easy-to-find place. They belong to you. They don't belong to your doctor. They don't belong to your insurance company. And by having DocuVax organize all these records and have, and this is the best part, Medical professionals from DocuVax that are on call for you 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, you can validate all of those medical records, vaccine records, blood tests, x-rays, anything else in your medical locker, and you can get basically free references to specialists instead of having to go through your general practitioner. And when I say basically free, it is $6.99 per month, but you can save the entire year's worth just with one reference without having to waste time and money going to a general practitioner. So download DocuVax and the app on your smartphone or go to DocuVax.com. Get all your medical records organized in a HIPAA-compliant, totally secure digital storage facility where that information is only available to you, your data is secure at all times, and to a doctor or an insurance provider or whatever that you want to share it with. If you want a group discount for DocuVax, you have to mention you heard about it on Equal Footing, and you can call 833 833- 859-1933. That's 833-859-1933. If you're a small business owner or you're in a, uh, a congregation or whatever and you want to provide a discount to your members. Again, that's 833-859-1933. Take control of your medical file and sign up at DocuVax. I've been caught. You know, in this, in the social media blast for tonight's show, we talked about getting into how the sausages get made and being, you know, kind of implied that we would be uh, vulnerable behind the scenes. Oh my goodness, has been such a stressful show because we've never done a kind of retrospective where we pull up all sorts of audio clips. It's really complex for folks in the in the studio, and it's caused some tension here. But working through the kinks. So sorry for the couple of audios we pulled up that have not been the right ones, but got a teaser for other content. And along those same lines, let's go further <laughs> again behind the scenes. We're, we're in March uh, 22 uh, last year, and the war started in Ukraine a couple of weeks ago, February 20th. It, it started. It was heavy times. It was worry again of nuclear Armageddon in the air. And we decided to kind of look at this through the I guess the, I would call it a Jewish prism, uh, of World War II. And you know that classic question that you get around, if you could go back in history, you know, what was the one thing you would change? And, and if you had that agency to, to alter the course of human history and a lot, apparently a plurality of people actually, meaning the majority, the most common answer is that someone would go back and, and kill Adolf Hitler. I, I would answer the same, I think, you know, prior to maybe coming into power in 1933. So we thought about that in the context of the war in Ukraine and this, uh, you know, despotic, uh, dictator of, uh, of, of Vladimir Putin. And we decided to do a show on pretty much last minute. We've, we got an amazing professor on, uh, a rabbi and, again, I'm going to get asked for the studio for a reminder. Not a rabbi. I'm getting the, the no sign. It was a professor, Rachel Van Landingham. <laughs> Should have known Van Landingham. <laughs> Not a Jewish name. Okay. She talked about the concept of the righteous kill. Um, is there time, is there a time when, um, 
that you can actually defend, you know, killing someone who hasn't been, you know, subject to the death penalty through a judicial process. And let's queue up audio A8 with Professor Rachel Van Landingham. We get that audio. About state sanctioned assassination. And Professor V, that's my first question. Is there a fundamental ethical difference between an individual taking an act to kill a, a war criminal, uh, to assassinate someone that they believe is, is, uh, you know, engaged in genocide, for example, versus a state sanctioned, sanctioned act of assassination? Well, there's a lot there to unpackage, but just in general, there is a qualitative and quantitative as well as a legal difference between actions that a state takes on behalf of its citizens and action a private individual takes. Uh, police officers uh, often do things that are usually prohibited by, uh, by private individuals but are allowed to be engaged in by police in their appropriate law enforcement role. And, of course, we know all about how police have acted outside of their, you know, abused that power, but they do have that power because they're acting on behalf of the state. We've given them that authority. So absolutely, I think there's a difference between the private and the public sphere, and there's different laws that apply in each. Now, Professor Van Landingham went on in this show called The Righteous Kill to get into the current, the what was, the current moment's debate around Putin. Let's hear the next clip. Gave well, the United States, once we were at war against Nazi Germany, Hitler as the civilian leader, the leader of both his uh, government as well as the commander of his military was a legitimate military objective at that point. So it's not the realm of assassination during peacetime. It's not murder for political purposes that occurs during peacetime by a state, um, which is what it seems that Senator Graham was advocating for either some kind of political assassination of President Putin. Um, but what he's advocating for is also an act of war. The United States as a government killed, targeted, and killed President Putin. We are declaring World War III, essentially, not declaring in legal terms as a declaration passed by both houses of Congress, um, but it's an act of war. And the current administration has done everything it can, it can to stay left of that. Well, after that show, Armageddon was on the mind. The Holocaust, by association, was on the mind. We decided to do a show we called Life 2.0, Life in the Wake of Trauma. And it was stressful because we were in Dubai at the time. And it was the show was going to be on live at 3 in the morning. And, and we got an amazing guest, Dr. Edith Eager, who we had uh, been wanting to have on the show for some time, the well-known author of The Choice and, and other chronicles. And uh, we managed to get her on. You know, with COVID, she was... Um, at home, the whole thing logistically was difficult. Dr. Eager is in her uh, mid-90s, I believe. And uh, we managed to get her on the show, audio challenges notwithstanding. And boy, was it worth it. When uh, Victor Franco was already a medical doctor, and I was a 16-year-old actually in Auschwitz, and I was in love. And I was a very strong Zionist. I belonged to the Betar, 
and we were going to go to Palestine and fight. We were very militant. <laughs> yes, uh, my daughter is looking at me. I said, yes, that was your mom. Uh, we had a goal. We're going to go to Palestine. So we were in a different time of our lives. And yet he told me when he was really in a terrible way, he closed his eyes and he imagined that he is in a Viennese lecture hall lecturing about the psychology of the concentration camp. And I said, I did close my eyes as well. And I imagined that the music was Tchaikovsky and I was dancing the Romeo and Juliet at the Modapest Opera. So we were in a different time in our lives. But when someone sent me message for meaning and I started to read it and I wanted to write 10 pages for everyone because I found someone who had a verbal capacity that I didn't have because I came to America penniless. I didn't speak English and I didn't want to do anything but be a Yankee doodle dandy, you know, like you. And so I, I went underground. I didn't tell anyone about Auschwitz because I just didn't know and I didn't have the verbal capacity that he did. And so I wrote an article very quickly, Victor Frankl and me, little old me, and somehow it was published and someone sent it to him to Vienna and one day I got a letter from Victor Frankl that he wants to meet me. And I met him at the wonderful international university in San Diego. It was amazing to actually talk to Dr. Edith Eager about her interactions with uh, with Nazis during the war, with Viktor Frankl after. It was a living history. Her message was one of hope, of it's not about what happens to you in life, it's what you do with each situation that's put in front of you. And she also opened up about how the war in Ukraine was triggering for her and that she feels it's each of our obligation to do everything in our power to help in any way. Let's hear what she had to say near the end of the show. To see where I am today, I live in a present. I think young, but not young and foolish. I'd love to be 94 years old and tell people that the chronological age is going to happen anyway, but your attitude is going to make all the difference. Because when I was 40, my supervisor told me to get a PhD, and I told him it's impossible. <laughs> By the time I get a PhD, I'll be at least 50, and he told me you'll be 50 anyway. So maybe as we are <laughs> entering Pesach, ask yourself those questions. What am I doing now? Am I free from my own concentration camp? Am I able to get up in the morning and look in the mirror and say, I love me because self-love is self-care. It's not narcissistic. Mm. Oh, beautiful messages. We'll be right back on Equal Footing. I'm Dove Tusman. We're doing 2022 in the rear view.
Footing with Dove Tuzman is sponsored by MDCS Dermatology, your experts in skincare. With two Manhattan locations and four offices in Long Island, including Plainview and Comac, the dermatologists and skincare surgeons at MDCS are proud to be affiliated with the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and New York Presbyterian Hospital. So schedule your next skin exam in one of MDCS's convenient New York area locations. To make an appointment, go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-DERM. That's 212-661-3376. You can even schedule a virtual video visit with MDCS's board-certified dermatologists from the comfort and safety of your own home. So go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-3376. And don't forget to mention Equal Footing for 15% off all cosmetic procedures. Back on Equal Footing, we're doing a retrospective of the first half of the year 2022. This is live, by the way, so that's hopefully gives a little bit of hopefully it gives us a little bit of air cover on some of the glitches uh, that we've had. It also explains why I'm mush mouthed as as usual. And because we're live, you can we're not going to take callers live in the show, but we will take comments and questions by text if you want to send in a text or WhatsApp nine one seven four two eight four zero six two nine one seven four two eight Four zero six two for comments or questions. I also got a coll- a correction from our producer uh, about. I, I was saying that the like the first few months of the year was smooth, and as we corrected, I was remember on the on the halacha of homosexuality show that we did. Oh, oh, sorry, that's late later in the year. Look at me, I'm, I'm goofing up. Okay, we'll get to that story. There's some the production gets a little dicey because I was traveling quite a bit in the middle of the year, and and you will get past. We'll do April real, real quick. We decided in the spirit of travel, and I hadn't traveled in a while because the pandemic and other reasons, and for much of April is traveling, and so we did kind of diaspora editions. We talked about uh, the newly um, invigorated Jewish diaspora in Dubai, where I used to live for some years. I went back before when you really had to be more of an undercover Jew there. Uh, we talked about the um, a really interesting community in Colombia. We'll get to that. And we ended the month on a couple of other diaspora shows, including looking backwards to the extraordinary diaspora of Arab Jews, the Mizrahi Jews and so forth in Northern Africa and the Middle East. But let's go to the near the beginning of the month and we were in um, the UAE, we were in Dubai, another, oh, I don't know what this was, 4 a.m., 5 a.m. show. And I'm getting a correction here. I think it was like 4 a.m. Anyway, we had, we had, uh, we were, we were in a hotel and we had a, an intro, we had a guy coming in the middle of the night uh, with a kippah. I was wearing my kippah. And then we had a guy in a dish dash, like traditional Arab garb. Um, and we were doing this live radio show. It was odd to say the least, not only socioculturally, but also just logistically trying to explain to the front desk what was going on with everybody. I don't know why we were wearing like suits and ties and fancy dress. Anyway, we had on this show, which we called Emirati Jew, Ross Creel is a, a community leader in in the Emirates and he's talking about some of the issues he's faced uh, there as there's been an um an opening of the community there. So let's play a quick clip from Ross Creel. About my place here is that I'm involved in a project that includes the whole Jewish people. That is not an Ashkenazi project or a Sephardi project. It's a project about the Jewish future built from Dubai. And I love the fact that I'm an Ashkenazi Jew living in a Muslim country. That never happened before in all of human history. And it just demonstrates, I think, what's special and what's new 
what's miraculous about what's happening right here. Yeah, it really is interesting. We had um, Ahmed Al-Mansouri on the show, who is from Abu Dhabi in the Emirates and actually has been responsible for opening the first Holocaust memorial in the country. Let's hear what Ahmed had to say. They make reference to the historical, um, and, and, and I promised on the program we'd have an opportunity to tie that together because I think most people um, would think of the Jewish community now in Dubai is kind of related to the commercial enterprise of, of Dubai, you know, the, 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 the shopping and the tourism. And, of course, okay, we'll let the Jews in also. But I've heard you talk about the, the kind of closing of the circle and, and the historical importance of, of the community reemerging here. Can you speak to that? Yeah. So the, the first thing I would say is that historically what's interesting is that there's, there's never been Jews living in this part of the Arabian Peninsula. Why that's nice for us is because this makes the project of our community a project that really belongs to the whole to the whole Jewish people. In other words, it's not a project of any particular group. It's not a project that you would call society or Ashkenaz or anything else. It actually belongs to all of us. That's the first thing to mention. Of course, historically, speaking more broadly, Jews, we're in Mecca and Medina, we're in Yemen and Amman, we're in the island of Hamas, and then of course, where, you know, the prophet um, speaks about, and the Quran speaks about the interaction between Jews and Muslims going back to the 6th and 7th century. So that's very, very clear, and that's why, as Ahmed said, there's always been a sense that, in fact, this is our home. And being here, in fact, is a home coming, a family reunion. These are the phrases that I think um, describe in my mind what it means for our community to grow here. Um, we can learn about that. And I said this in the intro, but I think it, it merits uh, repeating that you have introduced the first Holocaust memorial in a, in a museum setting or an exhibition setting ever in the Islamic world. And you've done that here in Dubai. Plug that. Talk, talk to listeners why they should visit your, your museum and your Holocaust memorial. Uh, when we launched the first event with Ross, the community just going to hear, uh, we made the first event about the Holocaust, and Yom Hashwa, it was 8th of April last year, and, uh, and then we made the gallery, and then the next day we decided to make it, 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 it again become a permanent gallery. So this is the first permanent gallery about the Holocaust memorial and the Arab Islamic world, which really, uh, is very important, it came at the right time. It's never too late. It's, it's, it's very important for one of the main reasons is to Sorry, we played a little bit more of Ross Creel there uh, before listening to Ahmed uh, Al-Mansouri, but interesting stuff. I'm going to move along to our next Diaspora show. It was about this very interesting Jewish community in the outskirts of Medellin, Colombia, basically a group of, of evangelical Christians who had discovered uh, their genetic roots. That part of the of Colombia is known to be very strongly genetically Jewish, given some of the uh, emigration, I should say, from the Inquisition uh, in Spain in, in the early 16th century there. And having discovered this, the, the head of the congregation, um, a pastor, went to Israel, did an Orthodox conversion, and then converted hundreds, if not thousands, of his, uh, of his congregation. Just fascinating story. Quick, quick introduction that I gave here on the show to his backstory. 
in from Colombia. We're in three different countries in Colombia. I'm in Cartagena. Rabbi Villegas is in Medellin, Colombia, and Dora Gilpin is in Bogota. Rabbi Elad Villegas, first uh, born Juan Carlos Villegas, uh, uh, took on the name Elad later. Rabbi Elad was born in Medellin, Colombia in 1976. He's the eldest son of his family, he's married to his wife Karen. Together they have two beautiful children, Yitzhak, who's 14 years old, and Raquel, who's 11 years old. Rabbi Elad studied his elementary and high school at the Catholic school, La Salle de Bejum, and after at the University of Antioquia. Antioquia is the province in which Medellin, which is the uh, second largest city in Colombia, sits. After being a religious leader of the Christian church, yes, you heard that right, after being a religious leader of the Christian church, at the age of 29, Rabbi Elad Vijegas converted to Judaism, Orthodox conversion, his whole family, and dedicate, dedicated himself to rabbinical study until he had obtained his Simcha and Yeshiva HaFutzot on Mount Zion in Jerusalem in 2013. Rabbi Vijegas is currently the chief rabbi of the Jewish community of the province of Antioquia, president of the Association of Israelite Communities of Colombia, and the kosher certifying agent for the food industry, and he's passionate about helping all of the B'nai Anusim hear what the Anusim are so that they can find their way back to Amisrael in Latin America. As is often the case in the background, the show is reflecting the contours of my life and our producer Leah's life. And at this time, we're traveling, really feeling again post-pandemic uh, that is like part of this diaspora. And as many listeners know, I had gone through this multi-year legal battle where I wasn't allowed to leave the country for like six years. And to be able to travel was amazing. And I was feeling this uh, sense of, of openness and really connected to the principle also of the show of really trying to show different points of view in these diaspora situations. This community in Colombia was very judged when you're talking in Dubai. Also, the Jewish community there is very, very judged for different reasons and trying to go kind of into the issue from a different perspective and give people the ability to, to empathize and have compassion for those we sometimes judge. We, at the end of the month, the end of where are we, in April of last year, we did a show on the Arab Jews. It was fascinating. Uh, check it out. We called it the OG of the diaspora because one could argue historically this was the first significant Jewish diaspora post the destruction of the Second Temple uh, expansion into Northern Africa and ultimately the Iberian Peninsula. We had two wonderful scholars on, Rabbi uh, Eli Abadi and Eli Sarder. And here we have Rabbi Abadi commenting. Here in Manhattan, and you're living in the United Arab Emirates. You're consulting with the government of Abu Dhabi in the construction of a big synagogue there. What is your view on how should we, as as Jews of Middle Eastern and uh, North African and descent, should we be returning to the region? Are there are there open doors? Do you do you do you think that's a good thing? Absolutely, we have we have cooperated with with our cousins, the Arabs, for centuries and millennia. Uh, we have lived amongst them, as I said, and we have always cooperated, and now we are coming back. So as, as Ellie uh, mentioned, uh, that there were almost a million Jews were expelled from these Arab countries because of the establishment of the state of Israel. The coming back 
is really something very, very normal because we belong to the region. We have been in the region for thousands of years. It's not something strange. And so now that the Arab countries are welcoming us back, it's kind of a vindication that in reality we made a mistake in expelling you. We made a mistake in persecuting you. We made a mistake in, in taking away your, your possessions and your property. And so coming back for me on a personal level, having been born in Lebanon, my parents from Syria, they were refugees, they were expelled and imprisoned. Coming back is to reestablish the presence of the Jewish communities in Arab lands that have been here for before even the Arabs existed or Islam existed. And we're doing a retrospective of Equal Footing of 2022. We'll be right back and hit the end of the first half of the year. Los caminos de la vida no son como yo pensaba, como los imaginaba, no son como yo creía. In 2022, Equal Footing was brought to you in part by Mechanical Art Capital, and it continues to be. Mechanical Art Capital offers overnight to max two-day financing to both watch collectors and watch dealers from anywhere in the world. Unlock the cash value of your collection or your watch inventory through max buyback contracts. Super easy to do. Five, ten minutes you can get cash for your timepieces without having to sell them. You get financing against, against them. Call for more information. Mechanical Art Capital can be reached at 833-209-0972. That's 833-209-0972. You can also download the Mechanical Art Capital app on your Android or iPhone. That's Mechanical Space Art Space Capital. Or go to their website, mechanicalartcapital.com. I've been calling. One of the challenges that we have on the show is keeping it always very um, present, real, vulnerable, not getting into just kind of following the trend on the debates of the moment. And that we don't always succeed at that. We're always trying to both listen to the audience and really select guests that will challenge the kind of writing assumptions of the moment. That challenge was never more present than in May of last year when the abortion debate, uh, this is before Roe v. Wade was overturned by the Supreme Court, but there was a leak as to what the prospective Supreme Court decision would be, and it was kind of in the air that we could have this momentous change in the right for a woman to seek an abortion uh, under under most circumstances. Obviously, there's some provisos to, to that, and there's state law issues but it was a tough thing to cover, especially I have strong uh, views on the issue, but on the show, we try to kind of not make it polemical. I don't want to state my views. I want to hear different perspectives through the prism of Jewish philosophy. We had Rebetz and Rivka Slonim on, Rabbi Simon Jacobson, both uh, erudite and um, respected thinkers in the Jewish world. The show is called A Limb or a Life and uh, there's, I encourage listeners to look it up. Uh, and we had some great listener participation. Let's see, let's hear a little bit of uh, what Rabbi Simon Jacobson had to say. It's called a self-proclaimed atheist. The God you don't believe in, I don't believe in either. So I believe that we live in a society that even though people call themselves secular, 
or don't bring God into the picture and I want God to be say, have a say in my private matters in my bedroom and over my rights is based on a very false premise of what God is. I believe there's going to be a tremendous spiritual revolution that will come out of all of this because secular society that does not have um, the absolute value of the sanctity of life ultimately is going to fail in marriages and relationships and in having healthy, functional lives. Not enough time here to, to we could kind of cover that show. I got beat up. At one point, uh, Rabbi Jacobson called me cringeworthy, uh, and uh, you got to listen to it uh, at the end of the 23rd minute on that on that show. Actually, I wonder if we can, can we pull up that clip? I think it's, uh, I'm sorry to do this to you guys in the studio at last minute, but audio clip, I think 31, it's uh, Rabbi Jacobson again. Is that possible? All right, I'll give you guys a minute. Give me a sign if we can, uh, if we can do that. We continue talking in the next week about abortion, but through the through the prism of, as usual, through a Judaic prism, but specifically around the inception of life. The show was called "When Does Life Begin." Uh, we looked at it. Uh, with Rabbi Dr. Jeremy Weeder, who's a scholar in residence at Keila Cheshron in, in Manhattan, Dr. Matthew Sleeth, who was looking, at, I, sh- I should say we looked at the interfaith, pardon me, interfaith perspective. Jeremy Weeder was looking at it from a Jewish perspective, Dr. Matthew Sleeth, who's a Christian scholar, and we had another Buddhist monk, not Doam Sunim, but Doshin Sunim, uh, who is on that show called When Does Life Begin? Let's uh, hear a bit from uh, Dr. Weeder we experience both at the beginning and end of life uh, in the in the without going into it at length but the, the controversy in Jewish law over brain death that is not a biological controversy it's a metaphysical one uh, and uh, so coming back to your question um, they really uh, at least in terms of the question of whether or not uh, the fetus whether or not life has begun. So there is a range of opinions, certainly within Jewish law, and somebody could justify a stance that we don't believe life begins until birth, and therefore we're marching for this. Um, I, I think it's worth noting at the same time, though, that within uh, within uh, Judaism, certainly Jewish law doesn't subscribe to what we would call uh, my body, my choice, meaning that we have many restrictions on what a person can do with their body. Uh, we don't believe that one can kill themselves. Suicide is forbidden under Jewish law. Wounding is forbidden under Jewish law. Uh, tattooing one's body is forbidden under, under Jewish law. Uh, so it's possible to support uh, abortion rights uh, on... Uh, on grounds that technically life doesn't begin until a certain point, um, but the certainly the, the the rhetoric of my body, my choice is not that. I think is something that doesn't really cohere at all with Jewish law. There was disagreement on that point, and we don't have enough time to go through the opposing uh, Abrahamic perspectives from Christianity, and even Islam was mentioned on that show, as I recall. But check it out. It was, uh, when does life begin? Another boisterous discussion. In June, we generated more hate mail. And yes, we do get hate mail. <laughs> Appreciate the feedback, particularly from, uh, folks in the from community and the observant Jewish community that think that we are sometimes pushing the boundaries too far. The goal is never to tweak. I want, I want that to, to, to really be understood and heard. The goal is to dive into issues, frankly, that we often wrestle with and to do so in a vulnerable way. And uh, that means sometimes, you know, we hear comments we don't like. 
Um, but the intention is not, again, to put anybody's faith down. In June, again, as I said, we generated more uh, hate mail. But I think, in a sense, for good reason. June is Pride Month, so we decided to do three es- episodes on various aspects of being LGBTQ in Orthodox Jewish communities. In the first show, uh, we had Esther Eckhaus, Shandy Weichman, and Rachel Klachewski on. Uh, Rachel's on for the second time in the year. And we, um, in fact, after we had a really interesting uh, dinner with one of our uh, guests with, with, with Esther and, and, uh, and talked about this show. Um, I'll also tell you, uh, a little bit about what happened production wise the next show, but let's hear about, let's hear a little, we were running out of time here. Uh, let's skip if we can to the question we had to Esther about her experience of being lesbian in the Orthodox community. Esther, you talk to a, a little, talk to us a little bit more about your, experience you you were married to a woman for some mm-hmm. time you're, you're now divorced uh, do you feel that you have a spiritual home in the orthodox community or have you do you feel like you've had to kind of make a break in order to live your life in a consistent way i think a little bit of both honestly um i think whenever you grow up with a certain Culture and tradition, there's always a sense of nostalgia and attachment to it. But at the same time, I have needed to kind of go off on my own and find my own place, my own spirituality, my own kind of traditions that work for my life. So I'm always trying to see how I can infuse the traditions that I grew up with, with my own personal experiences, with my own um spirituality, my own understanding of, of God, of, of Judaism, of myself. Um, Was it easier to be lesbian and, and Jewish in Israel or here in New York? It was, for me, it was easier in Israel only because I happened to have been part of a really wonderful community that was really diverse and really open-minded. Um, and my ex-wife and I were able to kind of build a community there that included lots of different kinds of people. Um, so we were able to have, we were able to have both. Whereas here, I think the religious communities are a little bit more black and white, a little bit more sectioned off, maybe from a fear of assimilation. Um, especially the Orthodox communities here are, are much more kind of close-knit. Fascinating. Shindy Weichman, after a couple of listeners commented, I wish we had time to do audios from some of the, we've had wonderful listener participation this past year. One listener commented on that show about how it's easier to pretend to be normal um, than lesbian for fear of being shunned by her own family. And so kind of this living this life, not only in the shadows, but a very proactive kind of role played fake life as it were in the community. Another listener commented about, the experience of being gay and family life not really in the Orthodox world being without strings attached and how alone she felt. It's very touching. Shandy Weichman responded to a couple of those listener comments. This comment and Shoshana's comment, and they seem so different, right? But for me, I kind of live in the in-between of both of those experiences. A part of me is like, yeah, Chaya, stay there. It's much safer. You'll have your kids. You'll have your community. You'll never feel part of it entirely because you're hiding a part of yourself but you have the safety and then I think to myself and I'm like but I never would have had the experiences I have had 
over the past 70 years, if I wouldn't have left or been pushed out or whatever it is, but I live with tremendous amounts of pain. Mm. Um, not so much isolated from my community. That's not it. Just the fact that I couldn't exist there as I was. That is my pain. Oh, that was heartbreaking. We went on to, I think, what was the hardest episode of the year production-wise and also perhaps content-wise called The Halacha of Homosexuality with Miriam Kabakov and Hannah Stein and Rabbi Joseph Isaac Korf, who's a regular guest. We did the car because of some logistical stuff. From We did the call, I should say, the show literally from my car outside of Harvard Stadium and my dog started barking in the middle and then we had to put him outside at an ad break and then he was barking some more. It was just, it was a total mess, but the show was interesting. Check it out, Halacha of Homosexuality. We ended the first half of the year with a show called Call Me By Your Name with Rabbi Mike Moskowitz and a pseudonymed guest named David Green talking about the journey of being um, a male member of the LGBT community ensconced in, in the Orthodox world. Um, and let's let's see if we can play audio fifty four here to wrap us up. This was, uh, I think, my comments the on talking the show. We're talking about same sex attraction and the gay male experience. We talked about the, the cisgender female experience a couple of weeks ago in the Orthodox Jewish community. Rabbi, I keep wanting to call you Rabbi Mike because you're so you're, you're so uh, friendly looking, Rabbi Moskowitz. I want to be respectful, and and Dovid. I caused a bit of a of an uproar, problem for myself on last week's program because we were talking to Rabbi Korf about the halacha, and he was basically saying, you know, there there is no nature component. It's always all about nurture. No one is born gay. Uh, he said, well, you know. What if I compared it to, you know, the, you know, trafe food, right? And so I said, well, you know, it's one thing to deny yourself eating pork. Okay, we all get that as a Jew. It looks tasty, but, you know, we have a, a clear uh, prescription. It's another thing to deny yourself love, to deny yourself sexual um, experience for your life. That doesn't seem consistent to me. With, with being Jewish. So if you accepted for a moment that someone's natural being was same sex, attra- same sex attraction, that level of denial to me feels like it's out of sync with what it means to be Jewish. As always on equal footing, we try to reconcile what it is to live in the real world and what it is to be parenthesis observant as a Jew. We talked. We talk a lot about that word, observant. What does it mean? Next week, we will go through the second half of the year. Hopefully, we'll get our audio glitches out. Thanks for being a part of our community. Check us out on Instagram, equal.footing. Follow us on the podcast platforms, equal footing. And on our SoundCloud link, where you can find our whole library. Happy New Year. Catch you next week. 